Before I read Psalm 26, I'd like to present a picture, an image for all of us to have in our minds about the power of a declaration. So I'm about to recap what I saw on the television a few weeks ago, I think it was. And many of you may saw or heard a similar image. And as I share this, it is just merely the illustration of the power of somebody being told they are not guilty. That's all I'm trying to say. There is a recent court case about a young man from Illinois, Kyle Rittenhouse. Many of you are probably well aware of it. It has all kinds of political conversations going on. Let's put those aside. If you have not seen the video of the verdict being given by the jury foreman, reading not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. That's the image I want you to have in your mind. And if you have not seen it, it's that the camera is on Kyle. And as Kyle hears these words, he cannot even stand. Physically, he's not able to hold the weight of his body anymore. He is shaking after the first word is given. On the first charge, whatever it was, we now pronounce that he is not guilty. You know how the proceedings go. And as he hears that first one, he starts shaking. And he starts shaking and crying so much that by the time the last one, he falls and collapses into the arms of his defense attorney. Watch it. And think about just that concept of having someone declare your fate. Having a judge or a jury tell you, not guilty. That's the image. Just want to illustrate that recently, in the news and media, many of you have access now to that picture of what the power of a human judge or a human jury declaring not guilty, what might it be then for you and for me to imagine ourselves standing before the Almighty Judge and hearing the verdict, not guilty, innocent of all charges. If Kyle Rittenhouse was looking at the future of his life and hearing not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, and couldn't stand, oh, I wonder what this might do for you and me. If you were to really believe, really know, and really experience God's words speaking to you and declaring you innocent of all charges. That's what I believe we get from Psalm 26. Would you read it with me? A Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. 
O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, amen. Big idea of what I just read to you. Just like David, you and I need to confidently have a case of innocence before the judge. Big idea of Psalm 26. Just like David, we need to have confidence to approach the judge and have a case that we're innocent, that we're not guilty. So let's take the big idea and break it into two simple questions for us to meditate on this passage of God's word. First question is, what is David's case? Why is David confident? What is his confident case that he's innocent? That's the first question. It's the main point of the psalm. David is praying, I've got a case that whatever I'm being charged of, I am not guilty. And on the basis of what David appeals to for his case of innocence, I think we learn much about our own case. And that's what I hope that we will see in this passage. First, David's confident case, and then ours. Verses 1 and 2 makes it really clear that he's confident. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Vindicate me, O Lord, is actually a translation and an interpretation together. The literal phrase is, judge me. I wonder how many times you've prayed that prayer. Judge me, O Lord. I would like you to examine my life and judge me. Do you see that very clearly in verse 2? He doubles down. Prove me. Try me. Test my heart. All three of these words are almost exact synonyms saying the same thing. Prove, try, test, examine. The last one, test my heart in my mind, is the word for refine me. I would like you to put me under the fire and burn away all of the dross and just see the pure essence of my inner being. You might even have a footnote in your Bible that says, my heart and my mind is literally my kidneys and my heart. So he points to two internal organs, both of which had the symbolic meaning of the inner deepest part of one's being. The kidney being like so deep into the inner being of one's body and soul that it represents the core of who one is. So that's his prayer from the start. Judge and examine thoroughly the very nooks and crannies of my soul and being. Every thought, every motivation, every desire of my heart, it's all before you, Lord. I would like you to judge me. 
And on the basis of the theme and the tenor of the prayer, translators take judge to say, no, he's not just asking God to judge. He's saying, I know that I'm going to be right, so vindicate me. That's our psalm. David is confident, so confident, that he's inviting the examination. Put me under trial. I would like to stand on the defense seat. I will go to trial and I will let you cross-examine as much as you'd like. So that begs a question. What human on the planet has that much confidence? Why would you ever pray something like this? And David tells us the answer. We don't have to guess. He tells us why he's so confident. And I'm going to give you a summary of seven reasons. We'll just walk through the text and you'll see it yourself. David has confidence of his innocence for seven reasons. Verse 1, notice that he says that he is walking in integrity. Judge me, God, because I know that my walk in this world is full of integrity. The Hebrew word tom means completeness. Sometimes it's even translated innocent. I know I'm innocent of whatever has been charged against me. I am complete and whole in my walk in this world. That's the first reason, integrity. Second reason, again in verse 1, notice he says, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And it's a translation of that phrase that says, my foot does not slip. So my faith holds even when everything else around me is going crazy, even when I'm getting accused of things that I know I'm not guilty of, I hold on and I don't slip. My grip and my foot stay steady. So first, he walks in integrity. Again in verse 1, second reason, he trusts in God. Third reason, verse 3. Notice that he says for again, for. It's a Hebrew word that could mean for or because, so he's giving his case. And in verse 3, he says, because your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in faithfulness. And this word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. It's appeared a lot so far in our study of the Psalms. And I've told you repeatedly that it's one of those words that does not get captured by one English word. It means faithful covenant loyalty. That's a mouthful, isn't it? One word. Faithful, covenant-keeping, love and loyalty. God keeps his promises. He's faithful. He's loving. He's merciful. That's chesed. And he says, on the basis of your chesed, faithful love, I'm always looking at your kindness. And as a result, I walk in your faithfulness. That's his third reason. His integrity, his walk, is based upon God's chesed love and him keeping his eyes fixed on God. Fourth reason, verses 4 and 5. This is the case for why David is confident that he will be judged innocently. Verses 4 and 5, notice he says, I don't sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort or literally go with the hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. You can see the Hebrew parallelism there. He's saying the same thing, and he's just repeating himself with different words. And the basic idea is what? I don't hang around with those bad people. I'm with the right crowd, not the wrong crowd. In God's economy, and as he looks at the world, there's the righteous and there's the wicked. I don't spend my time with the wicked. 
Now, I think it's very important to realize that this connotation of sitting with means that like deep communion and fellowship that we associate as peers and equals and as one another, as the, the, this is your tribe. Friends, it's, it's not that David would never spend time around people like, oh, get away from me, you're evil and wicked. That's, that's over reading into it. It's more that he lives his life in integrity. He spends time around the people of God. He cares about the righteous, good works that God has commanded him to do, and he does them in God's love and faithfulness. And so therefore, he's not around people that are full of hypocrisy, who are full of doing evil things, who he doesn't sit in fellowship for long periods of time with the wicked. So that's his fourth reason. I don't hang around with that crowd. Instead, look at the next couple verses where he contrasts who he does not hang around with, with those he does. So reason number five, verse six. He knows that he will be found not guilty because whenever he sins, he washes his hands in innocence. And this phrase innocence is actually, I wash my hands in that which is clean. So think about it like this, this picture, this poetic imagery is sometimes I do sin. David's acknowledging there's times that I need cleansed. But when I do sin, I keep short accounts with God. I go to the altar and there the altar washes me. That which is clean can wash of my filth. And therefore, I'm regularly cleansed by God's act of grace to wash away my dirt and filth. So he washes himself in that which is clean. Have you ever taken a bath in the mud? Well, that wouldn't accomplish very much if you want to get clean. That's kind of the picture. He's saying, I get clean water from God's source of fountain of forgiveness. And I sit underneath that fountain and I get washed. That's why I know that I'll be innocent when I stand before the judge. I've been washed by God's cleansing waters. His altar. Reason number six is in verse seven. It says that when he is in the assembly of God's people, he proclaims and makes them hear a thankful voice and a testimony of God's amazing goodness. And the word testimony here is about him saying a specific account. It gives you the idea. It's not just generally he's talking good about God. He is giving faithful testimony and eyewitness accounts of here's what happened in my life and here's what God did. This was really hard, and God faithfully provided. And time and time again, he proclaimed in the assembly of God's people a thankful voice that testifies to the goodness of God. Seventh and finally, he loves dwelling in the presence of God's house, God's habitation, the place where his glory dwells. Hebrew word, Shekinah. Have you ever heard about the Shekinah glory? It means the place where the the holy cloud of God's presence, the very hot spot of being on earth as near as you could possibly be toward God himself. That's the picture. I love being near you, God, in your house, dwelling with your people. And I think the rest of the psalm is his final plea to the judge on the basis of these seven things. So in summary, the seven things were what? First, I have a life full of integrity. Second, 
I completely trust in God. Third, I constantly look to God's love to help me walk faithfully in his ways. Fourth, I do not hang around with the wrong kind of people. Fifth, I'm regularly cleansed at God's altar. Sixth, I proclaim God's goodness to others and give testimony of God's faithfulness. Seventh, I love to be in his house. I can't wait for church. You could maybe translate 2,000, 3,000 years later. I love it. I love being with the presence of God and his people. That's his case. He's saying, I know I'm innocent. So his final closing argument, his final plea to the judge as he looks before God Almighty is verses 9 to 12. First, he says, don't allow my soul, my life, to be gathered up with sinners and bloodthirsty men. These men whose right hands are filled with all kinds of sinister schemes and full of bribes. I don't want to be judged guilty because then I will be lumped with all of those bad guys, the wicked. That's his first plea. Please, 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 God. See the innocence the way I'm seeing it. Declare me not guilty and therefore be put with the righteous and not the wicked. And then lastly, verses 11 and 12. But as for me, I shall walk. This is future tense. I will walk in this integrity. So redeem me. Be gracious to me. It's a plea. He's, he's begging God. I promise in the future I will continue this walk of faithful integrity. So redeem me. Be gracious to me. And I will bless you, Lord, in the great assembly as my foot stands on level ground. I'm firm. Again, note, note the confidence as he ends. My feet are standing on level ground. And that's why I could summarize this entire psalm by saying David is confident in his case of innocence. And hopefully you can see that very plainly from the way I've just walked through. He's got seven reasons, really. So I ask you, before moving on, does this describe you? Is that a good description of the case that you would make before the Almighty Judge? In some ways, I think we should answer the question, it should. What I just listed out, these seven things, this is the standard of the Bible. It should describe you. Does it? These are seven wonderful qualities that I believe each human being on the planet, not just religious ones. Humans should live a life of integrity, completeness, wholeness. We should be willing to be examined every thought and motivation of our mind and our soul and our heart and be exposed completely before one another and before God. We should be those that are trusting in God putting our hope in him, looking day by day, our eyes always looking up to God for direction and guidance. Friends, how often are you tempted to hang around with the kind of people that are going to corrupt your way of living? David says, I, I don't sit for long periods of time with people that are negative and critical and godless Sure, we can do evangelism. I, I think absolutely we should build friendships with people that are not Christians and are maybe the most heinous, wicked criminals on the face of the earth. You should befriend them like Jesus. 
But that should not be your primary community, your family, your source of strength, your hope in days when they are hard. You need people around you that are going to support you and point you to God's faithfulness, proclaiming the goodness of God to others. I love that sixth reason he gives. I go into the assembly of God's people and I proclaim the testimony of God. Do you know one of the reasons our church functions the way it does is so that you can give testimony to God's faithfulness? That you don't just hear it from the Bible, from me preaching to you. That's one thing we do together. But do you know since our church started, we've had a second gathering of the church. And the, one of the primary purposes of that gathering is to week in and week out pray for God's favor and give thanks to the way that God has heard our prayers and faithfully responded. We call it a breakfast fellowship. It happens at 1015. All of you are welcome every week. So much of the DNA of who we want to be as a church is not just people who come and sit and listen. Very good. It's a great thing to do. You should, as David says, love to be with God's people, hearing God's word, hearing testimonies of his faithfulness. And another way you can get even more of that is to come at 1015 on a regular, consistent basis as much as you can so that you can see that God's real. He's really working in the hearts and lives of his people. Hearing even just the brief summary testimonies this morning of the new members that have been added into our church, I know many of you were like, that's encouraging. I could see it in your faces. This is so great to see that in this COVID pandemic, God is leading people to faith in Jesus. We've baptized some in the past already in this last year, and we are planning to baptize more people that are coming to faith in the midst of this dark, chaotic world we live in. Hallelujah. Amen. Isn't that good news? Don't you see how that kind of consistent way of walking in your life would be really good for you? So I ask you again, does this describe you? Integrity, trust, God's hesed love always before you, day in and day out, morning and evening. Not hanging around with the wrong kind of people, at least not too long. Cleansed the forgiveness God offers at his altar, proclaiming God's goodness week after week and loving to dwell in God's presence with God's people. If you were today to stand before the almighty judge, the ultimate jury, and every single detail of your life was examined, every thought completely exposed, every motivation of your heart, would you be confident? Let's turn now to think about what our confidence should be. How we can have innocence. In that very scene, the courtroom of God. In one sense, our confidence is similar to David's. But in another sense, it's actually greater, really different. And I want to conclude our sermon by thinking about the similarities and the differences between David's confidence and ours. So first, in what ways is David's confidence here in Psalm 26 similar to us? And let me just give you some thoughts. First, similar to David, you need a case of innocence. This whole idea and concept is predicated on the idea that there is a God. He is a judge. He knows every thought, word, and motivation of the very inner parts of your being. And he will judge you for every word that you've spoken. That's from the Bible. 
Every single word will be given account before the Almighty Judge. Every word, just that one concept, could leave each and every one of you to shudder at the thought of standing before God. So we need a case of innocence, and unfortunately, for many of us, we're going to quickly realize, I don't have one. Similar to David, whether you feel confident or not, you will be judged, you will be thoroughly examined. Similar to David, the basis of your hope should be similar to his. Notice, this psalm is not self-righteous puffing up. It can be uncomfortable on first glance to read through this psalm and think, it seems like he's just kind of patting himself on the back. Judge me, God. I got my arms folded. I'm sitting back. I know I'm good. That's not really the spirit of this at all, is it? He says at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end, my hope is in you. I'm trusting in you. Your hesed love is my only way of walking in integrity. And in fact, I know I'm a sinner. I need to go to the altar and get cleansed, and I do because you provide that cleansing. So in this way, realize that David is putting his hope in God, and your case of innocence is ultimately found in him and not in your own self-righteousness. Like David, our ultimate prayer is the way he ends the psalm. You see verse 11 again? Oh God, redeem us. Be gracious to us. So there are some similarities between David's case of innocence. But ours, at the end of your life, at the end of all things, when the judge stands on, sits on his throne and we stand before the judge, I think we have a much better case. Did you know that? Look at the last line. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Friends, the difference between David's case of confidence is that David is confidently declaring that there's, it seems, a specific instance of a false accusation that he knows he didn't do. That's the context of this psalm, the details of which we don't know the specifics. But the case that he's making is, I've been accused of something, and I know, God, I didn't do it. And that might be relevant for many of you. Psalm 26 could be that psalm that you want to tuck away. Somebody accuses you of something, and you know you didn't do it, and you need God to be your refuge of vindicating you because you were right. And that happens in life. And that's what David's doing here. So David's confidence is in that he is confident that he is not guilty of a false accusation. We, though, can stand on level ground and confidently approach the judge of judges, even though we are guilty. And the reason is because of our defense attorney, the one who makes our case for us. And for this, we need to realize that David's psalm here is pointing us to a concept, an idea, that is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. God sent Jesus into the world. The second person of the triune God became man. Christmas, this season, is all about you and I needing somebody to represent us, to stand beside us, to plead our case before the judge. And sure enough, in some ways, you could summarize the whole story of Christmas and the meaning of it and why it's good news that God became man and dwelt among us is so that he could represent us before God the Father. We're guilty. We need to acknowledge we are not those seven things. 
And more often than not, we fail. And so I want to read a little excerpt from that wonderful book we just finished going through. In chapter 4, I believe, there's a whole chapter on the defense attorney advocacy of Jesus. It's glorious, it's beautiful, but notice this first. Dane Orland writes, Fallen human beings naturally want to make themselves self-advocates. Basically, be your own defense attorney. Stand alone before the judge. It flows out of us. We self-exonerate. We self-defend. In fact, we don't need to teach young children how to make excuses when they're caught misbehaving. There seems to be a natural built-in mechanism that immediately kicks into gear to explain why it really wasn't our fault. Our fallen hearts intuitively manufacture reasons that our case is not really all that bad. And since the fall of sin, this has manifested not only in our sinning, but in the response to our sin. How often do we minimize, make excuses, and explain away our sin? In short, we speak, even if only in our hearts, defending ourselves, advocating for ourselves. But what if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because someone else undertook that weight? What if that advocate knew exhaustively just how bad and fallen we are, but yet at the same time was able to make a better defense than we ever could? This is not blame shifting or making excuses. The way our self-advocacy tends to operate is blame shifting and making excuses. But a perfectly just God points to the all-sufficient sacrifice and the sufferings of the cross that were accomplished in our place. If this were the case, we'd be free. Free from the need to defend ourselves. Free from the need to bolster our sense of worth through our self-contributions. And we could quietly parade before others, or, or free from the need to quietly parade before others, our virtues in painful subconscious awareness of all of our inferiorities and all of our weaknesses. In other words, we can leave our case to Christ, the righteous one. That section really, I think, summed up well what's in my heart. I was kind of thinking the commonality that we share as humans. Many of you might be like, yeah, that's true. My husband, my wife, my friend, my family member, my mom or dad, they point something out that's wrong with me. What's your knee-jerk reaction? Oh, it's not that bad. I think one of the pathways for us to live holy, godly lives is to realize it's actually probably much worse. But who can stand under the weight of that? No one except one. Jesus the righteous. The entire chapter that I just read from, from Dane Ortland's book, is a meditation on John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And in the chapter, he explains something that I actually taught to you not too long ago. There's this Greek word, it's not very common, and it's called parakletos. And the word has two parts, para, which means to be beside, and kletos, which comes from the word kaleo, which means to call. So if you put those two words together, it's somebody beside you that's calling out or speaking. That's the image. And very often, Bible scholars will say that this word should be translated like a defense attorney or an advocate. 
So let me read that passage one more time with that image of Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous and innocent one, calling out to the judge, your case. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a parakletos. We have an advocate calling out to the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's kind of important for him to say, the righteous. Because his whole case is that I, Father, have bore the guilt and the pain and the wrath and the sin and the suffering on myself. And so now I stand beside them, representing them. And I declare that my sacrifice on the cross, my perfect innocent life, all the seven things that David described, and so, so much more, I have done. And I would like to be with them, beside them. And in fact, the way Jesus uses this word is to take it even further to say that the one that stands beside us, Jesus, comes in us. And he talks about the parakletos as the Holy Spirit. You have an advocate beside the Father in the heavens now, a human in heaven. You guys remember that sermon? There's a human in heaven. Do you know what he's doing? In part, he is calling out to the Father. I have people that I have died for. And those people are mine. And I am crying out that justice has been satisfied. Do not condemn them. Declare them innocent. And we know from God's word that the answer of the judge is not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. I wonder if on the basis of the gospel, a thousand times greater than Kyle Rittenhouse, Today, you would receive the message on the basis of the work of Christ, our advocate, and that the Spirit of God would not just be a demonstration of advocacy beside you, but in you. We have one who has perfectly obeyed all of God's commands on our behalf, represented in the heavens and in our heart. Or as Dane Ortland says, Christ gave for us the price of blood. But that's not all. Christ, as our captain, conquered death and the grave. But, but that's not all. Christ, as our priest, interceded for us in the heavens. But that's not all. Sin still lives in us, and it's with us, and it mixes in with everything we do, whether or not we are religious in our religious activities or civil activities in the world. For not only our prayers, but also our sermons need saving. Amen. Our hearing, our preaching, our houses, our shops, our trades, our beds, they're polluted with sin. And nor does the devil or night and day adversary, our night and day adversary, does he forbear to tell us our bad deeds to the Father, urging that we would forever be disinherited. But what we should do now, if we had not have an advocate in Jesus Christ, yes, if we had not one who pleaded for us, yes, if it was not him that prevailed and faithfully executed that office for us, well, then we would die. But the truth is that we are rescued by him. So let us, as to ourselves, lay our hands over our mouths and be silent. And let's not minimize our sin or excuse it away. Let's stop trying to raise our defenses. Let's simply take it to the one 
who is already standing before the Father, advocating on the basis of his innocence. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now as sinners, admitting and confessing that everything that we've just considered from your word and from these meditations of your word, it's true of us. We confess that every action we have done and every motivation of our heart has been stained with guilt. The bad news is far worse than what we normally give credit for. But that makes the good news even sweeter and greater because the, the sentence is not, well, pretty good. The sentence declared by you, Father, on the basis of Jesus Christ, our advocate, is righteous, innocent, not guilty. And I pray that your spirit will come into the hearts and the lives of your people right now. And that the advocate of the spirit would point to the advocate of the Son and that we would hear the Father being declared through my words now, we are not guilty. Oh, Father, we are thankful, overwhelmingly thankful that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to provide all that we needed and much, much more. And I pray this Christmas season, it would not be lost on us that we need not just a Savior, we need a human we need somebody that can identify with all that it means to be a human. And you've given us just that in Christ. And we're thankful that human is innocent of all charges. Well, Father, we thank you for your sacrifice in Christ on the cross on our behalf. And we pray that we would receive it by faith now in Jesus' name. Amen.